this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. Well, I think you're going to like this next interview with Dan Martell. So Dan has started five companies, exited three of them, and learned the hard way uh, some of the key lessons in really selling a company for a premium valuation. Um, What I loved about this interview with all of the insight Dan brings to negotiation strategy, the gamesmanship, the, the entire dance associated with selling your company, I think he does an amazing job of showing you how not to leave money on the table. I think you're gonna like this interview. Here's Dan Martell. Dan Martell, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so like you've sold a gajillion businesses. How many actually businesses have you actually exited? Uh, so I've had three formal exits started. I always joke about projects I've started, um, but I've started five companies. So, you know, people are always like, oh, you seem to know what you're doing, but they forget the first two. They were complete failures. So <laughs> five five corporate companies, three exits, two venture backed, and probably 27 domains bought for ideas. There you go. Awesome. So you're a true entrepreneur. Love it. I just, I love to create. Yeah. You know, before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about uh, Spheric and, and how that that might be the most relevant story for our listeners. Tell me about this business. What kind of company was it? Yeah, so we were an enterprise consulting company. I started when I was 24 years old. Um, I pretty much saved, uh, I think I saved about 70 grand consulting. I, it was funny. I was 21 years old making 150 grand a year. Um, I didn't understand it. My dad definitely didn't understand it. Um, and, but luckily I just had a really smart accountant that, uh, said, you know what, you only need about 38 K a year to, to live. Why don't you put the rest away? And, uh, that uh, plus a um, a great six month trip to Australia. Um, after after all that, I decided to start this company and decided day one I'm going to sell the Fortune 500 companies. And there was no rhyme or reason. I, my my first and only job I ever had that was the customer we worked with. That's where I learned the skill set that we specialized in. And I said, all right, let's let's start this. And um, I made every mistake possible. Uh, almost what, went what, bankrupt a couple times. And what kind of yeah. consulting were you offering these enterprise customers? 
Yeah. So portal software. So back in the day, this was 2004 when I started the company, it was right around the kind of consumerization of the enterprise. So like things like Yahoo portal and, and kind of these home pages were starting to make their way into big companies. So like today you would talk like SharePoint and WebSphere, IBM, like everybody's got a portal software because it's kind of like the front end to their back end information systems. But back then there was this, the, 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 the number one uh, player in the market was a company called Plumtree. It was the software I was trained and certified on at my first and only job. And I decided to create a Plumtree consulting business. And the customers buying, spending the millions of dollars for the software were, you know, Procter & Gamble, Dole Foods, Johnson & Johnson. Got it. So Plumware, or sorry, Plumtree Plum was a software that these these giant companies would buy. And then they'd look to companies like yours to help them actually make it work. 100%. So like, you know, big companies buy ERP software like SAP, they buy financial packages. This was just a portal solution to help integrate all these different systems into one interface for their, for their employees. And did your reseller agreement with Plumtree have any stipulations around how and if you could exit, what would happen to your reseller status if you chose to transfer ownership of the company? No. So the interesting part is I never became a reseller. We became an integration partner. Um, and because there was no kind of like uh, alignment with their resources to ours, there was, you know, we could do freely what we needed to do in the business. So they would bring us in for certain deals. They needed the consulting horsepower on where they were selling software. They couldn't really sell um, services as much. Um, and honestly, they just didn't have the expertise because they were growing so fast. Um, it was very rare to have somebody with our kinds of background and hence why the opportunity was so interesting. So when you're doing this consulting, is it on a project basis? Is there any recurring revenue or are you kind of making you know every project up as a custom I would say project? that was that would have been a, the biggest mistake I made from day one and didn't really correct it until two years in where initially it was, you know, uh, time for, for money. So we were essentially selling hours at different billable rates and towards the end of the business, um, we transitioned into, um, kind of like ongoing contracts plus maintenance contracts and, and doing custom solutions. Why do you say that's the biggest mistake you made? Um, valuation wise, I mean, uh, again, lucky, like literally two years, a few, two things happened. One, we almost ran out of money cause we were growing so fast. Um, which sounds hilarious. Like you would never think like we're being successful. Customers want our, so we're hiring people and I can't even make payroll. So that was, you know, cash flow. Uh, again, I was 26 at that point. So uh, a lot of lessons learned quickly. Uh, it was really just um, my one of my advisors saying, like, you need to get customers to prepay. You need to sell solutions, not time. And you need to, to you know, sell the service contracts because they're used to paying it. That's the, you know, we were not offering something that the market was used to paying for. And it changed the economics of the business and turned out was this the, the one of the big valuation uh, multipliers uh, when it came to exit. So I want to get to exit. What what size of company did you get to in terms of, you know, like top line revenue number of employees? Like just give me a sense of how big the company was when you decided to exit. Yeah. So, I mean, Trisha, we were about 32 employees uh, when we exited. Um, most of those were people working with customers um, in the field. Um, our billable rates were anywhere from 150 to 250 an hour. So, you know, people can figure out the utilization. It's not really something I've ever discussed, but, you know, 
anybody that understands that market knows kind of utilization rates and, um, you know, you can do the math, but you know, multimillion dollar business, we went, we were growing 150% year over year and, um, it was really profitable. And the reason why is I just found people in Eastern Canada that were willing to work for a lot less than most people in major cities. And all of our customers were in the U S major cities. So the economics actually worked really well. Did you get involved in, in, in the currency arbitrage, if you will, where, where you had the Canadian dollar lower than the U S yeah. So the, the, that did happen. And, but luckily I, you know, I brought in, um, a really great, uh, kind of CPA because a lot of businesses, um, actually build their model around that. And I think it's the dumbest and, and, and no judgment, but like, it's not real revenue. Like I don't control the, the exchange rate. It's a bonus. It's kind of like, I put it as other revenue in my, in kind of my revenue stream. Um, but, uh, we wanted to make the economics of the business, uh, stand on their own for the work we were doing in our costs. We kind of normalized things, but, um, yeah, it did, it did happen. But I still remember there's a point where it was like 25%, um, bonus and it went down to like 8% and companies that essentially their whole business depended on that folded, and uh, luckily, my CPA was smart enough to report my numbers differently. Interesting. And so, I mean, this thing is growing like uh, wildfire. Hundred, uh, you know, uh, thirty-two employees. You know, really, really profitable. The obvious question would be, kind of, why sell it? You know, what happens, and I think, you know, uh, in the service business, um, people, you know, we were, we were tech, we were building software, right? And I think uh, we always think the grass is greener. And, and arguably, since then, I've built two software companies. So I would say the grass is greener, like the the ability to build something, build a tool, a modern day, you know, rock, fire, stick, leverage point, whatever, is um, really attractive and building reoccurring revenue and, and, you know, building a new feature that gets deployed to all your customers using, uh, you know, software as a service or cloud, um, was something that we always thought about. We actually tried three times within our business to build and productize some of these, um, integrations we were building for our customers, right? Cause like there's services, but then it's like, you're writing code for them. Uh, one of the deals we did with Procter and Gamble was we built this platform called Ensor and we negotiated that they would essentially uh, get a discount on the project, but we would own the IP and allow us to then go and resell the software. And it just, the, the, the management structure, and this is why I teach a lot of founders today that are in that boat that have an agency that want to build software, is um, you really need to build it as a separate entity because if not, you're always pulling on your resources. Because when you have a guaranteed like billable project, and you have this like kind of like skunk works thing. You just never give it the attention that it needs to really have a fighting chance. Is that one of the big learnings that you derive from trying to launch products within a service company? That was, that was everything. Like to me, um, you know, what I teach people today to do is, you know, kind of figure out what level of profit you want to invest in this new product. Where, where are the people going to come from? And ideally they're not on your team. And then what's the, what's the 90 day product roadmap that you want to put together that, um, you can commit to because what happens when you have a successful and profitable business is you start pillaging your P&L, right? And you've probably had clients that have had successful businesses and just even want to open up a new division or they want to do a little side thing. And it's all of a sudden this profitable business becomes break even at best, if not starts losing money because um, you don't have the same fiscal discipline that you would have had when you started the business. That's the funny part is you stop acting the way you acted when you started the original business because you get more comfortable um, you, you think you want to move faster. People are paying attention. So it's got to be done at a higher quality level. 
um, all these, all these, um, you know, these things that are not true. And, um, I just, I, it was at the point where we had, we had an opportunity, um, from one of our partners to exit that brought the opportunity even to my awareness. I never built the company to sell. Um, I, I got lucky, you know, I, I actually read your book and was like, man, I really wish this was around back when I started this company, but we just got, um, to a point where it's like, you know what, I really want to see if, if my crazy software ideas would hold water. And after I exited my business, I actually moved to San Francisco to, to give it a shot. Interesting. So let's talk about the exit itself. So it's, you know, 30 employee company. Um, you mentioned you got approached by a partner, maybe talk a little bit about how you actually took it to market. Yeah, what happened is we we, we had a, you know, four or five integration partners. So they would, uh, these are bigger, um, companies like IBM global services and Tata consulting and like they're, they're multinational kind of, um, you know, they have the relationship with the customer and they bring us in for this specialty, which is if one of their customers buy this plum tree software, we're the number one plum tree experts in the world. Got it. And, and, you know, they're, they're seeing the growth of the, of the market and they're, you know, they're, they're in other, you know, tangential markets and they're like, think, you know, it's really about, we want to be in this new growth market. Here's this company that has the team and the specialty and the, and the brand awareness. Um, you know, we can either buy versus build. And I think that that's what happens. One of our partners said, like, what have you guys, have you guys thought much about like remaining independent or potentially joining forces? And, you know, and I'm like, well, what would that potentially look like? And they kind of throw out some numbers. And I was like, yeah, I reached out to some mentors and they were like, if this is a real thing, you should do some due diligence and kind of look at the other people and your other partners. And that's what kicked it off. And that's why like I ran my own process because it was initiated through one of our partners. We had enough other partners for me to kind of get more market validation um, and create a competitive process. And at the end of the day, the, the numbers felt right for me to kind of pursue what I always felt was my kind of destiny. And that was to build product. Let's talk about approaching the partners for a second. So you had four or five integration partners that, that you went to and you, and you sort of got this inbound sort of conversation started with one of them. And then you went to the other four and said, is this something that you'd be interested in as well? Is that, that generally how it played out? Yeah. You know, the, the language that I use, it, it, it was, it's funny cause I've used this uh, in every other company I've built since then was, Hey, we've recently received, uh, we recently got uh, inbound requests from a partner that's made us think twice about remaining independent. And we just wanted to reach out to see if this is a conversation we should have before things get too far along. Nice. I think I can hear it's some rewind buttons. <laughs> yeah. People are going to listen to that over and over again, because that's a beautiful way of characterizing. It's not saying I want to sell. It's not saying I'm going to sell. It's just saying, Hey, we're having conversations with one of our partners that are making us think twice about remaining independent. And we just thought we'd reach out to see if it's a conversation we should have before things get too far along. And I think, and then I've used that email since then, that structure to reach out cold, like, uh, you know, like here's 15 potential acquirers. We've got six that are warm. How do I get those other ones that are cold uh, ramped up? You can literally, I mean, if you don't have time, it's like you could use that email to some to CEO of another company that you've never met. Um, and it still works. Beautiful. And it says all, it hits all the right buttons. Doesn't say you want to sell, doesn't say you're desperate to sell, but it certainly says that they're going to miss out on an opportunity if they don't take action. How many of the, the five integration partners eventually sort of responded and showed some genuine interest? Um, there was only 
Well, really two and a third that kind of wanted, but they didn't have the the ability to kind of pay what was going to be required. Um, and then with that, uh, but that was, that was fairly quick, like within five days of just like quick conversations about our business, where we were at, where we thought, you know, the opportunity, our leadership team, all that fun stuff. And then, um, uh, through, some mentors and other people I knew in the industry, we kind of talked to, I think seven other companies that were similar. Um, and then kind of got three, um, you know, uh, competitive, uh, term sheets and then went with the one that we felt was the most appropriate. Got it. In terms of the leadership team, are they, were they shareholders, option holders, phantom equity? Like how did you incentivize the leadership team? Um, yeah, the every, so the way I thought about it, and again, I don't, you know, I'm not sure I would replicate this today. Well, I know I wouldn't because I've, I've done it since is, um, I just, I, I, I needed a kind of a manager or an owner per kind of, um, part of the business. And at, at the time of exit, we were, we had like kind of three, we started with the portal software that was, you know, 60, 70% of the business, but we were starting to build these other divisions. And I just figured, um, 7% was about fair. So, you know, 21% was to them. And then the balance was to me. And, uh, that's how it flowed. We didn't, you know, I was, I've, I've read your book. You, you have way better, smarter uh, incentive programs, I think. Um, and now with my two venture back companies, we use pretty traditional kind of Silicon Valley, uh, vesting and, you know, one year cliff and monthly vests and four year kind of, um, structure. So back then was almost like, you know, I knew them long enough, trusted them, felt they were super important. So, you know, 7% felt good. And, uh, that was, that's what everybody got. And was that 7%, I mean, were they making a market rate salary, uh, or were they being paid under market and being sort of, uh, definitely under market. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is, um, my team was Canadian, right. And, you know, like, this and they were and 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 I I just decided to hire people from small towns you know strategic I it, sometimes I feel like I was so cheap back then but it was just like it made I came from a small town of a hundred thousand people I thought you know what there's really great talent I just need to find these talents in those other cities and then build a training program to bring them you know on board ramp them up and deploy them to customers and uh, so I would say you know, based on what I was billing them out for a hundred thousand percent under market. So like they were probably, you know, 60% of market. Um, but you know, fairly on par for where they live. Got it. I want to go back to the three, uh, integration partners that, that express some interest. In fact, all five that, that you'd reached out to, I think if I'm putting myself in the, sh in the shoes of, of listeners right now, I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of people are asking, okay, how did you have those conversations without fully committing to selling your company? I mean, did you feel like you could back away from those conversations and, and put the lid, you know, back on this idea of selling and, and continue to run and continue to think of them as your kind of key, uh, essentially sales channel in the marketplace. I mean, how did, you, how did you think through that? Were you, were you at all risk? Did you feel like you were risking, uh, those relationships by letting them in? No, you know, I think the, the, there was an element of it's, it's almost like dating and all of them know that you're dating. Like it was, I did, I made sure that I never got things too far that if I said no, that they would be insulted. Um, so I, you know, it was, it was always like, um, a conversation with the CEO. Um, I, I really forced them, uh, to a position of like, you know, if this worked out kind of how, how would you see things? Cause I think what happens is a lot of, um, times when you're going through a process, it's the, um, expectations, reality gap 
at a point in the future too far along, right? So if you can do that early, and that's all I did is I just push them to get to real numbers sooner then what I've seen some companies do is they, they, they say, well, we're not sure our range is this and the range is ridiculously like big and we'd have to do due diligence to really understand things. I, I went in and said, look, here's our, here's our business. Here's my vision for the company. Here's the economics. Here's our numbers. And you know, we're having a discussion. We're not sure where it's going to go, but, um, if you're interested in discussing it, let us know. And I would just push them in that next meeting to kind of talk about how that might look from their perspective. And if I didn't feel they were directionally on the same plate, then I didn't pursue it further. So, cause I didn't want to get further along and then find out that, um, we were so far apart that that would, you know, potentially cause friction in our relationship. Got it. And so for the three offers that you got, did you get a range like we'd pay between X and Y under certain circumstances or did they give you an actual number? Um, it was very detailed number. Um, because I mean, our business was, it's very traditional. I mean, most enterprise consulting, um, you know, it's, uh, in this industry, the numbers are pretty straightforward. I mean, if you can do a strategic, that was great. And we definitely got, uh, kind of an increase in the valuation based on that argument, but it wasn't dramatically different. Got it. And, and what was the difference between the lowest offer and the, and the highest offer of the three? Um, I believe it was about 40%. 40%. Okay. And so what other, and again, I'm asking this because I, I can, you know, an entrepreneur getting a term sheet uh, or, you know, letter of intent for the first time, uh, I'm sure just goes right to the number, right? Like, what's the number? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and I, yeah, and I would say, and I think that's what you're alluding to, that number is, it's, you know, I always say in negotiation, it's like your price, my terms, or your terms, my price, right? So I essentially, what I was trying to do, and this is my help your listeners, is in the negotiation, I was trying to get to their number and then I would negotiate my terms. But as soon as I got them nailed on the number, then I could start thinking about well, what's important to me. For example, I didn't want a long earnout. Traditionally, agency earnouts can be two, three, four years. I negotiated six months, right? Because, and then I, you know, you argue all these other points. Escrow, how much do you think should be put into escrow? Um, by the way, if, if for folks listening, escrow would be a percentage of the the overall consideration you're getting for your business. Basically, put in, a, in an account that that a lawyer manages for a period of time, six months, a year, and 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 to basically guarantee that some of the the representations and warranties that you've made in the process of the negotiation are are not fraudulent. You haven't lied. You know, there's nothing uh, majorly different between what you said was lawsuits in case those pop up. Yeah, and, and a ton of stuff. And it, and it, most people that go through the first time they're like, what, how much you're putting that? Like, okay. So it's kind of like, you know, it's always about, you know, how much is it up front? How much, you know, if there's an equity component in that business, it was, it was a cash uh, deal. Um, in my two other companies, um, you know, it was a, a variation of them cause they were venture backed. Um, so yeah, I mean that the, the, the numbers were about 40% apart. Um, but the terms I would say were pretty close because I used that once I got their number to kind of um, negotiate against each other, kind of like, kind of level set those. So let me get this straight. So in this, in this negotiation, you wanted to look flexible. So you, you, you kind of got agreement on the number, uh, but then you sort of, you know, you employed your negotiation tactics around the terms. Yeah. So then if they wanted a term that I didn't like, I'd put the price up. Got it. Okay. See, most people don't do that. And then it's hard to negotiate because it's like apples and oranges. Right. 
So you, you'd be like, that, they'd be like, yeah, we can, we can meet you on your price, uh, but you got to do a three-year earn out. And, and, and you say, well, if, if you want me to do a three-year earn out, the price just doubled. Doubled for sure. I mean, tr- I wouldn't, <laughs> what's my value? I call it the value creation, you know, what's my yearly value creation worth, right? And it's a lot more than, you know, whatever their, that number. So it's kind of like use the stuff like that. It's like, look at, I don't know. I've, I've, I've done this a couple of times and have, have worked with a lot of tech founders and it's just, it is what it is. And, um, at the end of the day, it's all about optionality and it's running a process and, and creating a competitive process. And I just think, um, I got lucky in the first one that we had those relationships to even quickly circle back, um, to show the initial person that, we weren't going to not shop it. Cause I think that's a big thing that people do is they get one offer from one company and they're like, wow, that's amazing. And they just keep moving forward on that one. And, um, you know, I'm all about, you know, if I've got one, I've got 10, I just got to find out where those 10 are and, and get them ramped up as quick as possible. Yeah, no, for sure. What do you mean by optionality? I mean, optionality, it's like, I want to have the option. Like, um, do I want to, if, if, if you get to a number and then you find out it's all equity, and you don't have a competitive process and you can't negotiate for a cash deal, right? So it's like just having enough um, uh, demand in the market for your deal to be able to give you leverage to negotiate to me is optionality, right? Of what do I really want? I remember, so one of the most amazing things in my last exit was the uh, CEO of the acquiring company calls me out of the blue real quick. We're like, you know, this is, there's three other companies in the race. And he says to me, he goes, Dan, I just want you to know that I don't expect you to stay more than a day. And I was just like, I I almost did like a golf clap. I was like, well done. (laughs) Like, do you ever know a found, like a founder's like, and uh, he goes, look, man, at the end of the day, you built a great product and he started giving me all the reasons. And I was like, and his number was, you know, lower than the other ones. And I'm not going to say by how much, but it, it was that was, you know, so it's like, I just feel. So did you end up going with that guy? I did. I did. I'm not, I'm not ashamed (laughs) to say it at all. I mean, like I said, we know what our, we know what our time's worth. And at the end of the day, um, not only that they were, they they weren't going to integrate and close the product. You know, a lot of other companies, this is the other thing about optionality. It's like, you know, how do you want your team to be treated? Well, if you only have one or two suitors, and you find out they're both, you know, bad actors when it comes to like the way they treat their employees. Well, then you don't have any other options. And if you're really, you know, the other, cha- this is the thing I find is when people get into an exit process, it's almost like they start checking out of the business. Like they can't build and exit at the same time. And once they go down that path, it's almost like they're already spending their money in their head and it's really tough for them to come back. So the other, the buyer has them buy the, you know, the jewels. Mm-hmm. And so like how that. do you guard against that? Having more players? You, you create a, demand, uh, a competitive process by trying to find other suitors and letting everybody, I mean, I would do weird, like this wasn't sphere cause I, I wasn't that smart, but like, um, my company, my last company that I exited clarity, um, I met with the three CEOs in New York of three. There was, there was a bunch of companies we were talking to, but three of them were in New York cause they were all in the same kind of market. And, um, I, I created an event for other entrepreneurs in the city and I invited those three CEOs to that event so that they knew that I knew each other, the other ones, (laughs) that's the kind of, and that's why I think before we start recording, I said like, I love like fundraising. I love BD. I love the, the psychology of it. Right? Like I didn't have to say anything, but I said everything. (laughs) 
I love it. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. 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 Yeah. I remember my, my last company, we used to produce a, a large scale conference every year and we did exactly the same thing. We brought, we brought all the, the, the likely suitors to, uh, to be speakers at the event and they saw each other and, and knew each other, knew each other. <laughs> it's kind of yep. interesting. Love it. Okay. So what would a company like Sphere, what would an enterprise consulting company typically sell for in your experience? Like in terms of multiple of EBITDA? Yeah. I mean, so uh, the industry norm, because I've helped a lot of my friends exit their agency businesses um, between um, kind of south of 5 million, I think 5 million plus you get kind of these micro PE companies if they're doing a roll up. So it might kind of sway the economics differently. Um, Usually 0.7 on gross revenue or kind of 3x on EBITDA. Uh, is kind of the range for kind of like sub five million a year companies, and that would be the downstroke. What is available, kind of cash up front, or would that be including the earnout? Uh, that would be um, the price, and um, you would keep everything, the cash in the business as well. Got it. So, so there'd be an earnout on top of the three times EBITDA. Yeah. Got it. And then in your case, uh, what was what did you guys sell uh, Spheric for? In terms that of that number, yeah, we've never disclosed it. And you know, I'd love to give your audience an exclusive, but um, I figure I'd just give people enough uh, info to make their own math up in their head. But I mean, it was it was an awesome outcome. I was twenty eight. You know, awesome. Yep. What is it? Yeah, it was just. Um, it, you know, I think you never forget your first customer, your first dollar, and your first exit, and. Uh, it was, um, it was game change. It was life changing in the sense that it allowed me to think about possibilities. And I think until you get to that point in your life, you're always kind of just hustling and grinding and creating and, um, to get to a point, especially like I came from a really tough childhood and most entrepreneurs have, so it's nothing new, but, um, it was, it was a pretty special moment. What was the biggest mistake you made after you exited? You know, and I'll be honest with you, I I haven't shared a whole lot of this, but I think it's something people need to understand. Um, I actually went into a depression Hmm. and the reason why, um, like I had to go see a therapist, I got anxiety attacks. I mean, it was crazy. And I'm like, I'm such a personal development, personal growth, positive dude for my body to physically react and not me not be able to control. It just really threw me, threw me out of the, the, out of whack. And the reason why was, um, I had wrapped up my identity in this business. And, uh, it, it felt like losing a child and I didn't have kids at that time, you know? And it was like, it was so crazy to me that something I devoted my life hundred hours a week. I mean, there's, there was no balance, like zero balance for four years, um, had that much of an effect on me. And, and I definitely took that lesson forward in every company I've built since then is, my business is not me. It's my self-worth is not tied up to the outcome of the business. And this was a positive outcome. It's crazy. I, I remember the first day I woke up and I didn't have anybody that needed me to wake up and I got depressed over that. And it was so weird because here I was the financial means to do anything I wanted to do in the world. And what I lacked was a sense of purpose or a sense of being needed. It was weird. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever had listeners or your audience share that with you, John, but for me, it was, how am I sad for this outcome that on the outside, everybody would want. Yet for me, I realized like that was almost like it was who I was. How did you overcome it? Uh, therapy, 
my, my therapist gave me some case that go buy a boat spending time in water is great. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> my dad was like, why are you buying this boat? I was like, my therapist told me I need a boat. So, um, <laughs> I literally bought a wakeboarding boat and spent a lot of time, pretty much three months straight. But, um, it was, it was just through, you know, journaling, um, thinking about kind of the future and, and, and switching from kind of this, I was very, uh, it's so funny. Two different worlds. I used to wear a suit and tie every day as a 24 year old. Now I haven't wore a suit in probably six years. So like two different per personalities, right? Like that, the young person trying to punch above their weight to now I could care less kind of thing. So like, it was just this, this, this process of discovering who I was and what was my purpose and what, what what's the, the impact I want to have on the world outside of building a revenue business. And, uh, that took a while. But I'll be honest, man, like I think spending time in the water is actually it was some really good advice. How have you found the balance between not getting your ego tied up in the business, but still on the other side, having the drive to build two additional companies? Because a lot of people, I think, can get over the fact that, hey, your company's not you. You can have a life independent and, and you can go enjoy the, the fruits of your labor but then get soft and squishy in the middle because they've sort of lost the edge. Yeah. So, um, I, I felt like I had that opportunity and, and many people that I talked to, you know, it's weird first world problems. Like the hardest part you're going to have now is keeping yourself motivated that you don't actually have to do anything. It's like, really? It's like, wow, that's interesting. Um, so, uh, what I've learned is the, I still like, I still drive like I've never been driven before. It's just from, uh, the context of, uh, regardless of what happens, I'm, I'm valuable. My ideas are valuable. My, my, my experience is valuable. My lessons are valuable. Like, and those are me, not the business. Right. So it really, you know, it's kind of like, I say this to parents all the time. I don't, my kids are four and five years old, but I see these like, you know, uh, mothers with like, you know, kids that are 17, 18 going to, to university and like their identity is tied up into their kid's success. And that's, that's the same thing, right? Like w my self-worth is not the, the profit of my business. And I think at the end of the day, the question I always ask myself is, did I make the best decision with the information I had at the time? And if the answer is yes, then no, I can't, nobody can hold that against me. My investors can't be mad at me and, uh, I'll never be so hard on myself. And I just, I, I don't think that drive drive has to come from a place of service and value creation. It can't be from a place of ego. And I think that's probably what it is. Now that I say that out loud, it was the difference of, um, doing, uh, building spheric for my ego versus building my last two companies, um, to, to serve the world. And I think that's, that's how you kind of work with that. It's great advice. It's great advice. And I think you're, you're in a great position to offer because you've, you've done three of these now. I mean, as you look back on the last three companies um, and you think about Spheric and the, and the two more recent ones, I mean, what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned through the three exits that, that maybe you didn't know when you started? Um. I think day one, I, people say like, do you build the cell? Never, but day one, I reach out and try to understand the people that would buy. 
right? Regardless what business I'm in, literally, and I give this advice all the time now because I've been approached is no matter what business somebody's in, find the potential acquirers and, and, and ask themselves, what do you value? Right? I just think it's crazy if you don't do that because then it's really just luck. Right. But the end of the day, you know, a really good friend of mine runs a home building company and I was like, what's your strategy? He says, well, in 10 years I want to build it up and then sell it. And I go, well, have you talked to companies that buy home building companies? And he goes, no. I said, well, I'm not saying you have to, but I highly suggest it because what if you like found out the thing that they value is not the amount of homes you build, but maybe the way you build the houses or the customer segment you service or the you know, the contracts and the, like what the sales team you have, like, wouldn't that change your decisions on a quarterly strategic basis about how you create value? And he's like, Oh yeah. So I would say that's the big one. And I, I think most entrepreneurs don't ever feel like they'll get to a point to create things that are valuable to others. And I don't care at what stage, you know, 80,000 in revenue year one. Um, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense to understand. Um, so that's a big one. Uh, I would say, partnering uh, with companies that could acquire you is always a good strategy. Um, I know that Microsoft was notorious for buying partners that they shared the customer base with because that was a really great way for them to to extend and then cross-sell across other um, markets quickly. And um, so I would say those are kind of the two things that, you know, in my next company, I'll always like I'm actually working on something right now, but um, I'll do that right from right from the first, you know, first six months. So get to know the potential buyers very early. Partner with them if you can, but at least understand Absolutely. their motivations. Uh, Dan, this has been an amazing interview. Real pleasure to be with you. What's the best way for people to reach out to you, learn more about you? Is there a site or a like we're, we're yeah, Dan Martell. So Martell2Ls.com. So Dan And I do a YouTube video every Monday where I share lessons learned about personal growth oh, and great. business growth. Yeah, I started from my two little boys and it's turned into, I think, 12,000 subscribers in the last 16 months. So Fantastic. love to have um, your audience um, come over there and participate in the comments. And uh, my email is dan at danmartell2Ls.com. And uh, if I can ever be of service, just reach out. Dan Martell, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.